This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, the repercussions of Pope Benedict XVI's trip to Cuba. The Pope left the island weeks ago, but the human rights situation remains a concern. We'll have reactions. But first, Vanessa Jesus Gonzati is away for a few weeks, so Lydia Bayoud has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Nicaragua declared three days of mourning this week for Tomas Borje Martinez, the last living founder of the Sandinista movement who died on Monday. Borje is remembered by some as one of the most repressive enforcers of the Sandinista government when he served as interior minister in the 1980s. He maintained tight control over the media and dissidents as the government fought against the U.S.-backed Contra forces during the Nicaraguan Civil War. Hundreds of Nicaraguans paid tribute to Borges as his body lay in state this week in the National Palace of Culture. Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega addressed the crowd. Here we are with your family, Tomas. Here we are with your children. Because here, your little family has become larger. Borges died at age 81 of pneumonia. A military officer sent to investigate the alleged involvement of U.S. Secret Service members with prostitutes in Colombia last month has finished his investigation. A dozen U.S. troops working with the Secret Service in advance of preparation of President Barack Obama's visit to the Summit of the Americas have been implicated in the scandal. The U.S. military says the officer's report should be complete in several days and will be sent on to a military judge and other officers for further action. Though prostitution is legal in Colombia, it is illegal for U.S. military personnel. The men involved in the scandal could face criminal charges if found guilty. More reports are coming to light of U.S. military or embassy staff involvement with prostitutes in Latin America. U.S. Marines stationed at the American Embassy in Brazil have been implicated in a prostitution scandal dating from last December. There are reports of similar incidents from the capital of El Salvador dating to March 2011. Janet Napolitano, the Secretary of Homeland Security, has vowed to investigate these and other reports of incidents occurring within the past two and a half years. Napolitano says she wants to make sure the incidents do not constitute a systemic problem among U.S. federal security forces. Mexican migration to the U.S. appears to be decreasing for the first time since the Great Depression, according to a recent report from the Pew Hispanic Center. The report says that a declining Mexican birth rate, as well as several other factors, including a tough U.S. economy, could make this trend permanent. That would reverse four decades of migration patterns as more Mexicans return to Mexico. Mexican-born immigrants in the U.S. reached its peak of 12.6 million in 2007, but has dropped since then. The American Civil Liberties Union in Washington State has filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Border Patrol. The ACLU claims Border Patrol agents are racially profiling Latinos and other minorities by regularly submitting people of color to unjustified traffic stops. The class action suit is seeking to prevent Border Patrol agents from conducting traffic stops until they receive proper training and maintain records for all traffic stops. A Border Patrol spokesperson says his agency prohibits racial and religious profiling, but the ACLU says it wants the court to put safeguards in place to ensure the agency complies with the law. For Latin Pulse, I'm Lydia Bayoud. Thanks, Lydia. 
Ever since Pope Benedict XVI's trip to Cuba, this program has focused a bit more keenly on the human rights situation in Cuba. Some listeners may remember we invited Tom Quigley, formerly of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, to sketch our preview of the Pope's trip. We've invited him back this week, and joining him in our studios is Joe Eldridge, who's currently the chaplain at American University, a noted human rights activist, and the founder of the Washington Office on Latin America. Gentlemen, welcome to Latin Pulse. Thank you. Last week on this program, a representative of an anti-Castro group told us the current pressures on human rights activists really aren't anything new, and that because of the Castro regime's policies, there's no real civil society on the island. I guess I'm looking for your views post-papal trip. Tom Quigley, maybe you can start us off. Well, you start with a pretty extreme statement. Uh, to say there's no civil society is patently false. There is a considerable civil society. There always has been, but it's grown dramatically. Uh, I make the comparison between 1998, when Pope John Paul came to Cuba, and 2012. Uh, the civil society presence is remarkable. It's uh, can be felt in many, many ways. There are publications that couldn't have been dreamed of at that time, in 98. Uh, there's uh, broadcasts from, uh, on, on the media, on the internet, and there's just a greater deal of a greater amount of freedom that people feel about what, uh, what they do in their lives. Uh, <coughs> Joe Alters. Yeah, I would uh, say that uh, it's still incipient, but uh, developing quite rapidly. And when you think about uh, countervailing pressure on the government, the Catholic Church in some ways occupies a position that is unique in Cuban society. I think it is uh, the most visible and compelling presence in Cuba. I think uh, that really uh, started in 19... 98 with the uh, visit of, of uh, Pope John Paul, which I think was a watershed for Cuban society. Uh, and it is, and its space for operation in the last 14 years has grown enormously. And with it, I think it has brought along and given courage to a lot of uh, voices, dissident voices. I think this is expressed also through cultural forms. I know that there are ex experiments in uh, all kinds of um, uh, um, uh, music, literature, art is flourishing in Cuba. And, and in through the, the medium of those various cultural manifestations, I think the Cuban society are being exposed to a variety of ways of thinking about the Cuban Revolution in, in kind of new and exciting ways. I, so it's, it is patently false to say there's no civil society in Cuba. Civil society in Cuba continues to grow, and I would, wouldn't say it's flourishing, but uh, uh, certainly it's, uh, it's not stagnant either. Something is happening in Cuba. There's a lot of political social ferment going on in Cuba. Why do you think we get these extreme views that come from Miami that don't want to acknowledge what the church has done? Is it, is it impatience because it's taken so long for these open openings and apertures to happen? Part of it, of course, is the hostility with which people still bear toward uh, Fidel Castro and to the, the whole regime. People who lost everything, 
1960, 61, 62. They're not about, most of them are not about to be reconciled with the process that is going forth in Cuba today that everybody can acknowledge that there is such a difference between now and certainly the 60s, which is a totally different era from, from the time of today. But I just made the comparison between just uh, back in 1998 to, to the present time. There's been so much progress, but people in in exile, and they have very real, real grievances. There's no question about that. But many of them are unreconcilable. They just will not see this, the idea of finding any good in the present process. But what was remarkable to me in this visit, as well as in the visit in 1998, a number of people said they would never go back to the island. They had been exiled in the early 60s, that they would never go back until he was gone. They went back because the church urged them to do so in Miami and elsewhere, and they were grateful that they had done so, and they had this feeling that uh, they should have gone back earlier because there is so much going on in Cuba today that they can uh, they can identify with that is a uh, spirit of uh, greater freedom, not total freedom at all. There's so, so many restrictions because of a Marxist ideology is still dominant <coughs> in much of that uh, government, but people's lives are totally... <coughs> totally free, most of it, free from the, uh, the constraints of the government. People live their lives. The, the amount of uh, street dancing that goes on in, in parts of, of Van and other, other places, the amount of uh, blogs that uh, different people who have access to the media, to the Internet, <coughs> carry on, it's very, very different from what it had been before. But people in, some people in Miami find that hard to accept, and so they just want to see that confrontation is the only uh, means of addressing that, that government. And I would have to say that some of the laws mm. uh, can, are so vague that uh, dissent is too, e is too easily criminalized. Uh, and I think that to what, want, what uh, people want are greater political safeguards, but I think what's really driving the spirit of the Cuban people now is a desire to blow open the economy. Uh, I think they're m much more interested in seeing economic development right now, frankly, than, uh, than, uh, than uh, easing the, uh, relaxing the, uh, the, 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 the political grip that the government has on the country. It seems to me right now there's a uh, the, the the needs are are driven by economic necessity. I mean, people are trying to make a living, and the government uh, cannot keep up with the rising demands for uh, uh, shifting more rapidly toward a, a market economy and opening up opening up the economy. I think that's what's uh, what's uh, really uh, uh, causing most of the most of the ferment. Uh, Many of the many of the restrictions have been lifted, and as a concept, the Cuban people are very entrepreneurial. And clearly, if when they see opportunities, they're going to take advantage of those opportunities. And some of the micro enterprises are now developing into more substantial businesses, and they're beginning to hire more people. Uh, clearly, uh, there, uh, there's a uh, a large. Uh, group of the uh, of Cubans who are un who are unemployed or underemployed and uh, they're just trying to feed their families so I think that's that's really what's at the heart of uh, much that's going on in Cuba right now I, I want to get back to this issue of what you raised there Joe with the idea of the 
Castro regime, the regime of Raul Castro, um, having some reaction maybe to they've let a lot of these reforms out, maybe this current crackdown against dissidents is a reaction to their, their not being able to control what's happening in the ways that's happened in before. But I want to go back to something that Tom said earlier. He used the pronoun, we're not, he, we're not going back as long as he's there on the island. And I would guess that that's, that's the thing that happens when you're on, in Cuba and people make that hand sign of a beard. Uh, we're really talking about uh, Fidel Castro, whose, whose shadow continues to be long on, on the island. So is it, is it some of this shadow that we're also seeing in, in this part of the process that when people in Miami <coughs> talk about the Castro regime, they're still not recognizing that there might be a difference between the two brothers, that it's still all about Fidel. Can't get over that. Well, that's partly true. I think there's a lot of hostility just because Fidel was the creator of all of their problems as they saw it. Raul Castro is a very different person today. He's very different from what he was as uh, Minister of the Army back in, in the earlier years, uh, where he's got a lot of blood on his hands and so on. He's not a nice guy. He was not seen to was not seen as being a nice guy. But he has made accommodations to reality. Uh, there are changes. There's a process of, uh, of transition that's been going forward. It's, that's not a word that the government of Cuba likes to use, but it's been going on for quite some time now. It's just uh, this is a, another phase of it uh, after the Pope's visit. And the idea that uh, the Castros are one uh, entity, I mean, it is a, in a sense a family dynasty. has been handed down from one brother to the other. So they still see that as Fidel in the background, even though he looks so uh, worn and uh, uh, not uh, at all steady on his pins and so on. He's, he's a very weak man. But he is still there. And uh, Raul Castro is a much stronger man, not all that much younger either, but he's st still a uh, vigorous fellow. And he is seen by the opposition to the Castros as, as being the current embodiment. But it, I think it's less hostile towards Fidel than, than just toward the whole system. I mean, I think that's right. But I think that uh, clearly when the shift from uh, passing the presidential mantle to uh, Raul Castro, that triggered uh, a uh, stream of events that is leading to these changes in Cuba. Uh, and the question is, can the changes keep pace with the demands? And I'm not, that's, that's the big challenge for, for the government. And, and I'm sure that within the Politburo, within the leadership of the Communist Party, there are uh, a variety of voices that are pressing for more rapid changes, and I'm sure they're the old guard that is resisting those changes. But I think the, the, the wave I think once you kind of, once the genie's out of the bottle, once things begin to open up, uh, uh, there's no turning back. There's no turning back. I think Cuba is clearly on a road toward uh, a reform, change, uh, entering the 21st century, moving inexorably toward a market, uh, a more open market economy with, uh, with new investments uh, from abroad. Uh, uh, Cuba's changing. So, Joe Eldridge, um your reaction to those changes is—is is this why we're seeing a crackdown on dissidents after the after the Pope's trip, or 
or is that just also a, a bit of illusion? This is just the way that Cubans do businesses back and forth with the dissident community. I think it. I think. Uh, I think. Uh, I mean, there were uh, there was a crackdown before the Pope's visit. A number of popes were detained. I'm not sure that they're going to be uh, uh, prosecuted or. Uh, there are. I, I think the kind of era of the sentences that were meted out uh, uh, in, 19, in 2020, uh, 2003, with the arrest of the 75 dissidents, uh, with each given very long prison terms, I think those days are probably over. I think what more likely is happening are. Uh, I, I think there. I think it's a, a matter. A public order, and I think that they that the there's a I think you you can push, but you can't push too hard because there will be consequences. But I don't I uh, I believe that it's it's uh, I mean the the issue the the issue that is on the uh, <coughs> a major stumbling block for U.S. policy is the the issue of Alan Gross, who was. Uh, uh, convicted of spying and sentenced to 15 years in prison, a 60-year-old uh, man who was a subcontractor for the U.S. government. I think there's a great deal of concern about him. I know that the Cubans are concerned about him. I think that, that uh, the, certainly the U.S. government has focused uh, a lot of attention on, on him. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, that uh, the Cubans, of course, want the United States to begin to take steps to uh, soften, to relax the embargo. I think they uh, are concerned about the U.S. foreign, the, the program, it, the, 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 the regime change paradigm still informs U.S. policy. With that, Joe Eldridge from American University, Tom Quigley, formerly of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Stay with us, gentlemen. We'll be back with more about Alan Gross, dissidents, and the resonance of the Pope's trip to Cuba after this. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Joining us today is Tom Quigley, formerly of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, recently returned from Cuba, where he was with Pope Benedict and our own Joe Eldridge from American University, one of the founders of the Washington Office on Latin America. Before we went to break, Joe was giving us a, 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 an outline of how Cuba fits into U.S. policy, but I think during the break you mentioned it's important for us to understand context right. in Cuba. So please give us some of that context. Well, after the revolution... I, I know I'm a Protestant, and I know that after the revolution, a, lo a lot of mission, well, the missionary, it was a huge mission field for Protestants and Catholics. And after the revolution, of course, all the missionaries fled or left, didn't flee, but they left Cuba. And many of the local clergy 
were considered socially socially undesirables and thrown into prison uh, re-education camps with prostitutes and with uh, 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 migrants or uh, vagrants and other trash, uh, the trash, the trash, the trash. The present Archbishop of Havana, Jaime Ortega, was in an UMAP, one of these camps of uh, for re-education. And and in some ways, I've talked to some of the clergy who say that they were they got uh, they were re-evangelized, if you will, being in these camps. Uh, they got a new sense for their vocation as Christians. So it had a profound impact on many of the people who were, many of the clergy who were in these camps. But over the years, and, and for, for years, uh, uh, the church, the, uh, re- the government was very hostile toward any kind of religious expression. And churches suffered. I mean, uh, m- uh, church membership went down. Church attendance uh, went down. They never closed the churches as such, but the churches were had tremendous restrictions on them. And what's happened in the last tw- uh, 50 years is, uh, uh, as I say, a relaxation. The uh, more and more freedoms have been granted to the church, to the churches, to uh, secure building materials, to renovate their churches. Uh, to uh, and and uh, um, I think a major change took place in the early 90s when the government decided that yes you could be a member of the Communist Party and also uh, attend mass or go to church and that that happened over time I know I remember a famous visit by Jesse Jackson I can't remember the mm-hmm. date but Jesse Jackson visited Cuba and uh, uh, Jesse Jackson and Fidel Castro were walking along the street, and Jesse Jackson actually saw a, a Methodist church, took Fidel by the arm, and into this Methodist church they went. I think that was the first time Fidel had been in a church in a, in a very, very long time. So uh, when, when, the, uh, when, the, when the government said, uh, it's okay, you can, you can attend church, there are going to be no recriminations, there's going to be uh, no penalty for Communist Party members. You can be a Christian, and you can be a party member. That was a big breakthrough. And Tom, well, there are very few Catholics. I will tell you that uh, decided because they now could join the party wanted to do so. I mean, the Communist Party it was never favorable toward religion by definition. It is not. And so, one of the major effects of the removal of the Cuba being an atheist state and now a laic state was that many of the people who practiced Santeria could do so openly. They were members of the party, but they were also now free to, to behave as members of that uh, belief system. Uh, there are a certain number of the leadership in the Protestant churches, including the, the chief uh, uh, head of the Council of Churches, was a member of the party. In fact, he sat in the, in the parliament, in the assembly. So there was a sense in which parts of the church, but mostly not the Roman Catholic parts, uh, were not uh, parts of them were favorable toward these these changes, and Castro really had to take away the atheistic taint because it was not playing very well in the rest of the world. The idea of communism being anti-God was just uh, not not uh, modern; it wasn't really functioning. Fray Beto, who was a Dominican friar from uh, Brazil, wrote a book. He did a whole, several many hours of interview with Fidel Castro, and he wrote a book called. Fidel and religion, and it was said to be a sensation because it was the first time that Fidel was ever talking about religious issues, but uh, I think he was persuaded to do so because 
that was a way of making himself more humane and uh, more attractive to the rest of the world than just the leader of the revolution. Has the church made an opening, political opening, in Cuba that others, other organizations, the UN, political organizations, couldn't make? Well, I think so. I think it has, because it has the historic uh, presence in the country from well before the revolution, that, uh, and a large number of people consider themselves to be Catholic. Uh, many more today consider themselves or acknowledge that they are Catholic than, than was the case during the worst times of the revolution. Uh, the, I've seen a figure recently that some 60% of the people who are dying do call on or their families call on a priest to, to uh, attend to that person or to have burial in church, which in was Cuba. not the case in Cuba. But we don't see that sort of church attendance. The statistics I've seen at 5%, 7% of the yeah, population. That's why I think the Pope's visit was fundamentally focusing on evangelization, teaching social values, uh, believing that by uh, it, uh, being a pastoral, it was a pastoral visit. It, was a it wasn't a visit. it wasn't a political visit. It was yeah. a pastoral visit, and I think it was in recognition of the fact that the church needs to be revitalized, re-evangelized. You're right. Only five ten percent of Catholics attend mass. I think the church. I think the Pope is concerned about that, and I think he thought that his visit would could potentially spark a renewal of faith and uh, reinvigorate uh, the Catholic Church. Joe Eldridge, you put on the table before our break the issue of Alan Gross. Was an opportunity missed by the Pope maybe not being able to intervene in that particular category? I mean, people have criticized the Church for not being more expressive about the Gross case in this particular window of opportunity. I'm not sure that there was much to gain. I think they probably had a cost-benefit analysis. I don't know. I, I don't know. But I'm not sure that had that become a feature of the Pope's visit, it would have made one. It made a difference one way or the other. I think what the 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 crux of the issue for Alan Gross is U.S. policy, U.S. policy, uh, and the and Washington's attitude toward the government. Uh, if there are, if, if the Cuban government recognizes that there are meaningful steps toward relaxing the embargo, relaxing the sanctions, I think uh, the Cuban government would respond in like fashion. I wouldn't take a, a direct connection, I wouldn't make a direct connection between Alan Gross and what the Pope had to say in Cuba, but he did say, he called as he has repeatedly, as previous popes have, as the bishops' conferences of Cuba and the United States have, for ending the embargo, ending all the restrictions. So that was part of his message that he left with the Cubans when he, when he, when he uh, left the, the island. In a sense, he left with the United States. And so he is calling, has been calling for ending of the embargo. It's, a, it's unproductive and it's not moral. So I think it was never in the case, never in the, in the cards, that he would address Alan Gross specifically. The Pope was in, in Cuba for little over than 48 hours, and he had a great many things to do. He did not meet with, some of the, with many of the dissidents for obvious reasons. He had very little time. He didn't meet with the priests, religious seminarians, and uh, didn't meet with the ecumenical and interreligious groups either. But he met with uh, he met with Castro, both brothers, and he met with the important people that needed to hear what he had to say. 
And it was, as Joe said, a, a trip of evangelization. He called it a pilgrimage because it was the 400th anniversary of the finding of the Statue of Our Lady of Charity, which is the symbol of all religious people in Cuba, the Catholic or not. Nuestra uh, Señora de la Caridad del Cobre is the, is the key figure in Cuba. And she did, the statue was brought around to every province for two years, culminating just in this past uh, few months ago. And even in the Diocese of Havana alone, it took two months to go from parish to parish to parish. So that is a, the, the main reason for his visit at this time. But within that context of a spiritual pilgrimage, it was a, an effort to strengthen the church, to encourage people, and to build bridges toward the future. It's a, yeah, the, vir, the Virgin has magical properties. Whether you are Catholic Believer, non-believer, it is embedded in the culture of, of the Cuban people. Well, with that idea of magic and religion together, which seems somewhat appropriate in Cuba, we have to end our discussion today. Our guests today, the Reverend Joe Eldridge, the chaplain at American University and one of the founders of the Washington Office on Latin America, and Tom Quigley, formerly of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Rick. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Lydia Bayoud and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.